Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by Keith Raboy, general partner at Kosla Ventures. Keith, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. So, Keith, I'm excited to talk to you today and you know, dive into a bunch of topics related to startups and venture capital by, you know, really focusing the bulk of this conversation on your core proficiencies of hiring and operating. But before we dive in, you know, as background, you went to Stanford undergrad, Harvard Law, and then worked at a few places before making the jump into tech. You know, talk a bit more about your early career and how it led you to be a member of the now famed PayPal Mafia. Sure. So I spent, yeah, most of my 20s actually as a lawyer um, between law school, and then I clerked on the Fifth Circuit and worked in New York City and Washington, D.C., primarily for a law firm, uh, the kind of canonical law firm, Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell. So I spent three and a half years practicing there after a year of clerking and three years of law school. So you could argue I wasted eight years of my life, um, but in any event, or nine years, um, but in any event, um, managed to escape um, in the height of the internet bubble in February of 2000. Um, I jumped off the classic sort of large law firm trajectory and into the highly variable, um, somewhat eclectic uh, startup world um, about a month before the entire NASDAQ collapsed. So it might have been a great idea. Um, got wonderful advice from lots of people about the wisdom of doing this, but the timing was abysmal. Um, fortunately, I navigated my way um, later that year uh, to a bunch of misfits um, in Palo Alto that were working on this online payment startup that was actually uh, being run um, by my friend, a friend of my college, uh, Peter Thiel, had been reappointed as CEO on September 25th in 2000 as interim CEO, actually, after Elon Musk had been fired um, over the summer. And um, I decided to move from the in the sort of cold East Coast world of Boston, New York, and D.C., and join a bunch of my friends in sunny Palo Alto in November 2000. Uh, we were burning a lot of money a month, um, six, seven, eight million dollars a month at that point, uh, but we were able to pretty quickly turn around the company and uh, within two years have an IPO, sort of survive the nuclear winter of uh, the internet bubble collapse in Silicon Valley and go on and build, you know, new and interesting things over the last 15 years. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're at PayPal and obviously it ends up becoming a huge success, but you know, the PayPal story I think is unique because of, especially because of the generational impact left behind actually happening after the company's, you know, chapter ended, you know, of course I'm referring to the roster of companies um, that were founded afterwards by the early team members you referred to Peter and Elon, but you know companies like obviously Tesla, SpaceX, Palantir, YouTube, Yelp, Gammer, LinkedIn, um, and, and others. I'm interested to get your thoughts on you know how did that happen? You know Max Levchin once said PayPal was an extreme experience in survival against all odds over and over again. And you know Peter famously writes in Zero to One how. Um, you know, you guys had just closed a funding round before the whole economy tanked. So, you know, what were some of those experiences from PayPal and what was it about the core team there that enabled such systematic future success at, at the highest level? Yeah, I agree with um, 
the comment Knox made, which is one of the primary drivers of uh, uh, success, both at PayPal and maybe subsequently, was the difficulty of the actual business we were working on. So um, the challenges were very complex, complicated, and required heroic efforts and a lot of talent um, to dress. And I think the experience of suffering through those difficulties and also watching um, who thrived in that environment among you know, our colleagues and who didn't allowed us to calibrate who we'd want to work with, who we'd want to fund in the future. But there was a lot of lessons about the difficulties of startup and how to approach them that could be transferred to any company. Going from zero to one, as Peter writes in his book and, you know, brought, and lectures about, is very, very difficult and rarely successful. But I think a lot of people sort of grew up in the PayPal era, um, learned some of the appropriate techniques and tactics that they could bring with them and apply and bring to bear in subsequent endeavors. Uh, secondly, I think we had um, some different philosophies about how to run and organize a business. And many of them were, at the time, contrarian um, and different. Some of those have become more conventional and adopted more widely in Silicon Valley, at least. And so they're not quite as um, out there. But I think some of those practices were helpful. And many of us you know, brought with us into subsequent endeavors some of the ideas that you know, Peter Max, to some extent David Sachs, championed. In addition, particularly Peter and Max were incredibly adept and attuned to uh, the recruiting of talent and the importance of the talent equation at both PayPal and uh, work product. So I think the ability um, to diagnose what kind of talent one needs, the ability to recruit that talent, identify it, recruit it, close, and mentor that talent is a key variable in a startup success. And uh, really, Peter and Max were extremely uh, proficient at it and gave us um, sort of a lesson in how to achieve that sort of success. Yeah, you have an interesting perspective, actually, on, on hiring talent. And that's, um, you know, I want to dive into that a little bit. Um, you know, your, your perspective, as you've often talked about, is hiring talent at um, startups is similar to drafting athletes for professional sports teams. So talk, talk a bit more about that perspective um, and how, as an organization, you should think through the composition of your team. Yeah, I think it, um, the, the metaphor works for people who follow sports and are you know, sports, sports aficionados pretty well, which is you're really recruiting people based upon potential and not upon um, historical experience. The reasons are multiple, but the primary reason is it's almost impossible in a hot economic environment to recruit people who've already accomplished the things you're trying to achieve. Those people... Um, already doing really interesting things, being paid and compensated uh, quite well for it, and the various incumbents that exist, whether it's Apple, Google, name your favorite company, Amazon, uh, wherever, Facebook, are going to offer these type of candidates an incredible amount of money that would be imprudent and virtually impossible for a startup to compete with. So I think you have to identify talent that isn't yet totally proven that is hungry to establish um, their masterpiece um, in their career and that you can identify before the large powers that be know how to process these people. Um, so just like once everybody 
has sort of played in the major leagues for a certain number of seasons, the degree in which um, a general manager can excel by a differentiated assessment starts reducing, the, the greater variance is earlier in someone's career. And so, yeah, the disproportionate skill and comparative advantage in assessing people, you want to apply that as early as possible in people's career because most people aren't going to be very good at that. They're going to have a lot of random errors, and you can perform you know, with highly, highly differentiated results. And so that's the key characteristic of building a startup is identifying at scale sort of under-leveraged, undervalued talent and then recruiting it. So once you identify that under-leveraged and under-recruited talent, talk, talk a little bit more about thinking about the type of environment that you build, you know, around that talent. So, you know, one of the pieces of, of PayPal's success and, um, you know, with talent early on was the maniacal focus on focus, right? So the clear adage of making sure you were hired to do one thing and, you know, you executed on that one thing really well. And I think at the organizational level, it boils up to the Jim Barksdale quote of, you know, making sure the main thing at the company stays the main thing, which sounds easy in theory, but, you know, as you know, in practice is actually really hard. You've, you've talked about this phenomenon before, you know, with the relation to working on A+, plus, B+, plus, and, and C problems. Talk a bit more about that idea and the importance of core focus in a company. Yeah, I think it's pretty intuitive um, for most humans, which is, Everybody makes a list every morning, every week of things they want to accomplish, and there's usually some pretty mundane things on that list, like go grocery shopping, drop off the dry cleaning, etc. There may be a little bit more complicated things, like interview for job X, Y, or Z, apply for this, a little bit more discretion, higher variance on output, and then there's some hard things, challenging things, like make myself more successful, get promoted, blah, 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 blah. Um, natural human tes- tendency is to achieve psychological satisfaction by crossing some things off the list every day. And those things tend to be the easier things to cross off the list because you know how to do them. You know, if you allocate sufficient time, they can be accomplished. So, for example, if you put on your list, I'm going to go to the gym, that's a kind of a binary decision. And as long as you allocate 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever the case is, um, you can ensure that you accomplish that objective. Whereas the hard things, like let's say I want to become president of the United States, there's no easy path to that that you can just sit down and say, if I allocate two hours today, I'm going to achieve this objective. And so people tend to defer those kind of decisions. But it turns out the most challenging problems, both in your own life and in a company, which is just uh, a multiplication of people, get deferred because they're really hard and there's no straightforward answer and you have to bang your head against the wall for a long period of time often to solve them and you have to be fairly creative and demonstrate a lot of tenacity and so the purpose of the focus is to not allow the substitution of the easy things like going to the gym against the important objectives that require intense effort and so by requiring people to substitute Eventually, you get breakthroughs because people aren't distracted by the easy stuff. So basically, what you're doing is not allowing people to put stuff on the list that's easy to solve and then allowing them the psychological satisfaction of crossing the easy stuff off the list. You're basically saying there's only one thing on your list or there's two things on your list. And by the way, they're the most important things. So you're not going to get satisfied until you get those you know, achieved. And how do you think about that issue when you when you think of talent allocation for you know a fast growing rocket ship company, right? As as companies evolve, you you kind of face the natural tension of matching 
company growth with personnel growth. Uh, every growth stage for a business, established processes break and, and new processes need to be formed. And oftentimes the people that were good fits you know, early on aren't good fits as, as the company grows. But there's also the inverse, which is, you know, if you look at the most successful companies today, the most successful technology companies, a, a Facebook, a Google, um, a, a, a Tesla, these are founder-led companies that still have early team institutional fabric uh, leadership and, and DNA, frankly, embedded deeply in the organization. So talk a bit more about, you know, the balance of keeping a strong founding culture, but, you know, having an agile and evolving team and then, you know, maybe proactively, how do you actually think about that notion um, and incorporate it when hiring and managing your team? Sure. So I think every challenge has a different sort of DNA that's ideally suited to solve it. Uh, using a football metaphor, I think there's times when you need a quarterback, there's times when you need an offensive lineman, there's times when you need a wide receiver, and let alone like defensive side. Uh, so you know, quarterbacks don't look anything like uh, certainly offensive linemen. Um, quarterbacks are six foot four, taller, um, you know, quite uh, usually quite intelligent. An offensive linemen are like 350 pounds and very wide, um, and you know, often actually test with a lower IQ than quarterbacks. So, depending on what problems you're trying to solve, you have a sort of a central casting um, sort of DNA that you're looking for. We actually use the term at Coastal Ventures of gene pool, gene pool um, recruiting. Um, and so, I think sometimes you have that person on your team and who has most of the core ingredients, and you should allocate him or her to that specific problem, and that becomes his or her focus. If not, you may need to go out you know, to the world and find someone who's got the, the key DNA to solve the type of task that the company needs. And you're usually doing both, um, possibly every day, often every week. It was like, okay, what are the key challenges in front of us between here and success? And then how does my current team um, what talents is my current team who has the right appropriate skill set to go tackle that problem? And if I don't have it, where do I go get it? So let's send that QB and Lyman analogy because I think it's interesting. And it's, it's interesting as it pertains to leadership, you know, in an organization more broadly. I'm not, I'm not sure, obviously, what Peter's current perspective is. But, you know, at PayPal, I, I know he talked about the idea that, you know, he didn't believe in managers. And his belief was whoever was the best at a certain discipline should should run that discipline. And I think the larger conceptual idea behind that is, you know, this would form a fully meritocratic team and also just builds a culture in which, you know, the leader of each group or each business unit is respected for being, you know, the best of that particular area. But, you know, taking your analogy and taking that point of, you know, you can have a quarterback on a team, you can have linemen on that team, you know, that model can break, right? Because the skill set of shipping code isn't the same as leading people. So you can have, you know, absolute substantive killers for a business unit that are just terrible at people management. So how do you think about leadership models for organizations? And what do you think, you know, are the characteristics of strong leaders? Well, it does vary again by role or task. I, I think the leadership isn't leadership isn't leadership. So leading a team of salespeople is very different than leading a team of engineers, which is actually pretty distinct leading designers. Um, so it depends who, what's the composition of the team as well as what's the kind of challenge. Some challenges that you're trying to solve are optimization challenges. Those are innovation challenges. And some people 
have skills at optimization linearly, and some people are creative breakthrough, more oriented towards creative breakthroughs. And so I think just matching the right team with the right leader for the right problem is the key. There are definitely disadvantages of promoting um, your best execution-oriented person to lead a project. However, those disadvantages almost always are less painful than the disadvantages of a broad leader, in quotes, who doesn't have any substantive skill. So I think when you don't have substantive skill in a discipline, your team really can't learn much from you. Um, you can't really solve their problems. Um, you can't be the problem solver in chief for either the company or for that team. And those are really demoralizing um, and underrated in terms of their impact. Plus, if you think about what's easier to coach, truthfully, it's easier to teach people to lead um, teams than it is to teach them substantive skills in terms of just there's lots of empirical evidence for this. Um, so I think that all things being equal, you're much better off promoting people who are awesome at the discipline and at the craft and putting them in charge of other people who aspire to be as good, which is motivating and, and challenging and the work product, which is something you really care about, the quality of the work product improves because there's a fine uh, an editor with a very fine eye that's judging, engaging, and approving all the work product. Um, so that philosophy was pretty core to PayPal. Um, and it's pretty core to most of the subsequent companies, not all. Um, everybody who's founded their own PayPal company um, has a different mix, a cocktail that they've borrowed from our PayPal experience. Some borrow different pieces, some edit other pieces. It's up to the individual founders, but there's a lot to learn from our experience. Yeah, one of the TED Talks I was watching recently and I actually enjoyed most was Ray Dalio's talk on, you know, how to build a company where the best ideas win. And, you know, of course, Ray and Bridgewater are infamous, you know, both positively and negatively, depending on your view of it, for, for radical transparency in the meritocratic culture they've built. You've talked a lot about transparency in an organization, both at the conceptual level as, as well as some of just the minor details, you know, to help accomplish it, um, like having glass windows, for example. Talk, talk a little bit more about, you know, your thoughts and, and perspective on transparency. What's the right level of it in an organization? And, and tactically, how do you actually accomplish it? Sure. So I'm a pretty fanatical advocate for almost complete transparency. Um, so my general default is push transparency to its absolute extreme until something breaks. The biggest reason why is... If you expect people to make smart decisions, you need to provide them the context. And the only way to provide context to people is to give them access to all the information. So when CEOs or leaders sometimes get frustrated that uh, a deputy, a direct report, a junior employee is making a wrong decision, it's usually the bad that when you diagnose what actually went wrong, it's almost always that the junior employee, the direct report, or some other person didn't have the total context that the CEO or the senior leader had. And, of course, therefore, he or she couldn't make the correct decision. So you want to push as much information down and through the organization as is possible and communicate it in a powerful, succinct way and simplify it but give people the raw data so they can go make their own wise decisions. And then that cascades to the entire organization. So it's fundamentally critical. The second reason, which is less important but pretty substantive, is you want people to learn. 
And the way you create an organization that's a learning organization is by teaching. And the way you teach is by sharing, sharing information, sharing decisions, sharing meeting notes. Things allow people to kind of grow up. And when people are learning, they're more likely to stay. When people are learning, they're more likely excited. And in a hot talent market, which is certainly what's been the case in the last 10 years in Silicon Valley, where everybody's competing on a war for talent, you want to have an environment where people can learn as much as possible, as fast as possible, because then they're growing and then they can accomplish new things, as well as they're motivated to stay where they are as opposed to seek out new opportunities because they're still on a learning curve. So whose role is that at a startup? You know, I'm, and I'm particularly interested in, you were obviously, you know, you were CEO at Square at, at a very early stage. And, um, you know, a lot of investors, I spent a year out in the Valley at a startup, and a lot of investors balk at that notion of having, you know, a COO so early on in a company. But you came in as the 20th employee, and, and that was your core function. You know, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, not only what specifically you view as, as the role of a COO at an early stage startup, but... When do you think it starts to be imperative that startups have someone in that kind of capacity? It does vary a lot on two dimensions. One is the complexity of the business. Uh, some businesses are much more complicated than others. Payments and certainly squares are fairly complicated. One, Open Door, which I'm currently working on, is incredibly complicated. I've also worked on several companies and invested in companies that are a lot more straightforward. So the degree of complexity um, affects the need for our senior leadership, management bandwidth. Second is every CEO, every founder has a different skill set. Some are incredibly deep um, and some are much wider. Um, they have different preferences about things they like to do, doing and things they hate to do and sort of procrastinate doing. So basically, I think the role, especially in an early stage, earlier stage company, is really to complement the CEO and founder. And so find out what your strengths are as a founder and CEO versus what the entire needs of the organization are. And sometimes that can be a very senior compliment that is the right decision to recruit and um, attract. Sometimes the needs are very defined and fairly narrow to compliment the CEO. And hence, you don't need a, a president, a COO, or somebody of that ilk. And so it does vary on a case-by-case basis. I have an entire lecture sort of I've given at our CEO summit of how and how and when to know whether you need a CEO. And my friend Jeff Doniker, who's the CEO of Yelp for nine years or ten years, also has a similar presentation. It's a fairly complicated set of decisions about when to hire one and who you need. One acid test of just like intellectual bandwidth is if a CEO is waking up on a Sunday and looking at his or her calendar going into uh, the upcoming week, if about, about half of the time slots uh, on the calendar are already booked with commitments and meetings, it's probably time to start thinking about adding some significant senior leadership. But the way I often think about it is being a CEO is a fairly lonely job, and um, many CEOs could benefit by having um, sort of a senior business partner to bounce ideas off, to brainstorm, to problem solve together. And the, the CMO is a good opportunity to bring someone who's a first-rate business mind, uh, strategic mind, into the company so that you get the benefits of that dialogue. So let's switch gears a little bit and actually talk you know, a bit more broadly about the state of venture today, because I think there's actually a lot more there's a lot more CEOs and founders, largely because of uh, you know the influx of capital that's come in. So, 
you know, the capital allocation landscape of startups has dramatically changed since 2000, right? You have a significant amount of additional early stage funds, early stage players, and then you have some real heavy hitters that are coming in at the growth equity and, and beyond stage and folks that have you know, traditionally not been invested or, or interested in this space at all. The adage in venture has always been, you know, that regardless of the amount of capital available, the same number of generational companies are historically started every few years. And, you know, 90 to 95% of the exit value comes at the hands of less than 2 to 3% of those investments. So with the change in market dynamics, you know, both market sizes um, and then more cost efficacy to truly start up, do you see that age-old adage remaining true in venture going forward? Or is there a tipping point that will come in terms of increased capital actually facilitating you know, more winners and, and increased investment opportunities? Um, I personally don't believe that more capital equals more successful companies. I think, if anything, it may actually be inversely correlated, so more capital reduces the number of successful companies. primary reason is that founder, except extraordinary founder talent, is incredibly scarce and limited. And it doesn't matter how much capital there is in the world, you just can't meet more world-class entrepreneurs. Uh, sort of baseball metaphor is probably the best way to uh, explain this, which is there's only so many people on the planet that can throw a fastball over 90 miles an hour. And Major League Baseball literally cannot expand because that nobody knows how to teach people to throw a fastball over 90 miles an hour. There's no evidence that you can actually train people to do this. And as an exa- as a result of that, if you can't throw a fastball at roughly 90 miles an hour naturally, your shot of becoming a major league baseball pitcher is like virtually zero. And if you can't be a major league baseball pitcher, you can't add new teams, you can't expand. And I think that's roughly true of world-class founders, that there's a, a, a very finite supply, and that no one's really figured out how to make more of them, um, as opposed to train those who are pretty talented and make them better. Uh, so I think that's um, you know one major issue. Second thing is the reason why I think it's inversely, so that's a constraint. The reason why I think it's actually inversely correlated, i.e. the more money that flows into the system, the worse the company is, what we've already discussed, which is the critical density of talent issue. So the way you build an extraordinary company like PayPal is you assemble and marshal an incredible team of talented people, and you have to uh, assemble that team and maintain that team for a significant period of time. As more and more companies um, are capable of being funded and more and more investors are throwing uh, checks at people, the grass is greener a sort of uh, approach tempts some people to leave these successful companies and want to find a, found their own company. And if it gets too easy to do that, at the margin, you decrease the number of companies that have a critical density of talent assembled for a sustainable period of time, which basically means that nobody creates successful companies or that the companies that are created that are successful are suboptimal. And I think that's often true, and it's one of the reasons why the well-observed observation that the best companies are usually founded during recessions is true because I think it's easier to assemble that team of talent and sustain it uh, for a significant time frame is more possible when nobody else is hiring and nobody else is funding. But when everybody's funding companies, it becomes really difficult. So, for example, during my PayPal days, we had over 90% uh, conversion rate on offer to employee accepted. That would be very difficult to do, even for the best companies in today's environment. That's interesting. I, I think 
another key piece there is, and, and I wonder what your thoughts are in relation to what's going on with you know the private and public markets, is you have companies that are staying longer and longer on the private side. Um, and there's actually a net negative of companies that are being listed versus companies falling out of the public markets. And, you know, I think that's, that's a bad thing for a couple of reasons. I mean, you can talk about, you know, the wealth creation issue and how it's uh, concentrated so it's not accessible for the majority. Um, you can talk about some of the heavy hitter public tech companies having a ton of cash on their balance sheets and, and creating a market for large scale M&A where they just create mega monopolies. But I think one of the core problems you, you can start to find is you can actually have some of these companies get very lazy with capital um, and not actually put in the right governance structures that, that would be there if you had to go public. I mean, case study in case in point is, is Uber, right? Um, I'm not sure if a lot of those systematic issues would have been solved with public governance, um, but they, they certainly would have been unearthed with public shareholders as opposed to you know, being in the private markets. But based on how capital flows are today, you can continue to raise these multi-billion dollar rounds in, in the private market. So you know, what do you make of the dynamic between the public and private markets today? Um, what do you think needs to happen to enable more companies to go public? Um, and is, you know, is, the, is the concept of being public, is it changing? Do you still think it's a good thing or, or a bad thing? So I, I have a somewhat contrary view on this, which I share with Bill Gurley. I think going public um, as early as possible is almost always the right choice for a startup. I think there are so many benefits of being a public company, both internally and externally, that as soon as the company has the credibility, the internal um, controls, and has the, the density of scale and talent, um, it should be a public company. I've heard about this for at least 10 years. Um, I think it makes no sense to defer going public. I think these are all fictional problems that people create. So, for example, there are excuses. Um, people say you can't be innovative as a public company. Well, that's just ridiculous. If you ask anybody smart, one of the most innovative companies in the world, they inevitably name Google, Apple, Tesla, Amazon, Facebook. Well, guess what? They're all large market cap companies. Um, it'd be very difficult, actually, to even get a good answer out of somebody what's the most innovative private company on the planet. Um, so I think that's fiction. Um, number two is people talk about, oh, the morale issues associated with the stock price going down. Well, I think you need to have a culture where people are, are realistic and intellectually honest, and when they create value, it'll be rewarded, and when they don't, you know, they shouldn't be. And it's fundamentally a meritocratic world, and stop coddling people. Secondly, related to that, is as a CEO or a senior executive, I certainly know how the stock price affects um, internal morale. Whereas most morale issues in a private company are very subtle. So, for example, if you change the food you serve people, um, it can affect people's behavior and people start whining and gossiping and organizing and lobbying. And that distracts people more than the stock price going down. But you don't actually, you don't actually catch up, uh, become aware of that as acutely and as quickly. So I think there's just so many different excuses. Um, so I, I believe in going public as fast as possible in almost all cases. I think the incremental transparency and discipline of a public company would be a great thing. Um, maybe sometimes people you know, want to defer reality, um, and I think that's a fundamentally bad reason um, to avoid going public. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can have, in addition to all those things you mentioned, I think there's a real talent liquidity problem that starts to happen in some of these you know, mega-billion-dollar rounds later stage, and you can actually have a lot of employees start to get locked in because they can't exercise their options and it can actually negatively inverse the culture because you have a bunch of people that are there that actually don't want to be there. 
Um, yeah, that's that's true. It, it, there's a lot of complexity to that. It's important. There's ways to sort of address that or minimize that, both internally how you structure various options in the first place. There's also some improvements that you know the Congress may get around to, kind of on a bipartisan basis, related to and taxation um, that definitely um, would be you know a serious improvement for everybody. So I think there's degrees of freedom there that don't necessarily have to require a company to go public. But I think generally speaking, going public is a very good thing. So Keith, to round out our conversation, I, I want to go through a little bit of rapid fire. So I'm, I'm going to ask a string of questions, and I want you to give me an answer, if you can, in, in a sentence or less. So which tech company that exists today do you think is the most valuable company in 20 years? Wow. Um, hopefully it's Open Door, but uh, that's not <laughs> <laughs> um, that would, it, certainly possible, um, you know, given how unique our value proposition is, how large the market opportunity is. You know, it's basically saying we're going to provide liquidity to the largest asset class in the world that doesn't have any liquidity today. That should easily be a hundred billion dollar company if executed properly. Um, so that's not the largest in the world, but that's just the first stage. Um, I think um, a more common answer: twenty years is a very long time horizon. I would suspect it's probably a company that doesn't even exist um, today um, or barely exists. Um, so I think forecasting that far out is like a sort of fool's errand. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't have any, you know, particular professional interest in uh, chasing fools' efforts. <laughs> Fair enough. Which of the most five valuable companies by market cap today, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, do you think becomes irrelevant first? Uh, Microsoft, can uh, I think, is doing an excellent job of propping up their relevance. But I think the macro trends are just not in their favor. Um, the consumerization of everything is continuing as a macro trend, and Microsoft's lost the consumer world. Um, they do have you know, significant enterprise usage and adoption and collaboration and work productivity tools, but I think all the modern innovation there is coming outside the Microsoft ecosystem, and they're barely holding on um, you know, sort of to a quasi-monopoly created 30 years ago. Um, at the you know, cloud la- layer, they are doing well, but they have significant competition with Amazon and Google, and so it's hard to see them being as a clear winner. Which whoever won the cloud layer, that could prop up, uh, you know, a significant company for a sustained period of time. But I don't know how they win it um, as opposed to just stay stable on that. So I'm pretty dubious about their long-term viability. Yeah. If you could only start one more company during the rest of your life, I know you just started Open Door and you're focused on that, so that can't be a part of this answer. But if you could only start one more company, who would you found it with? Who would I found my next company with? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> um, um, there's a few. There's a few candidates um, that would be great. Um, I'm gonna get them all in trouble by naming them. <laughs> <laughs> something to get lots of job offers. Um, so I don't know if I should share all their names. <laughs> um, you can look at that an answer I wrote at Quora in like 2010. Uh, I answered this question, which was, who are the most um, high potential people under the age of tw- uh, 30? Mm-hmm. And um, now with the benefit of seven years of hindsight, or, um, that answer still looks good. Um, but I, I don't know if I want to share all my secrets. Yet. Fair enough, fair enough. Do you think Silicon Valley is still the world's top innovation hub in 10 years? Yes. I mean, 
lots of people can whine and complain, and we're doing a good job in Silicon Valley of trying to screw up with that. <laughs> but, uh, the, leader, the leadership, the government, you know, a bunch of things coming together that make things miserable. But um, nevertheless, Berkeley, actually Silicon Valley is even more important than it has been in the last 10 to 20 and 30 years. Um, so the, the metrics don't support the argument that innovation is, uh, you know, dispersing. That said, you know, various government entities at both the state and local level are certainly um, trying to make life miserable uh, for entrepreneurial pursuits. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what triggers an avalanche, but if it's not, it'll be mostly a self-inflicted set of wounds versus somebody else somewhere else creates a better alternative. So what's the best advice you've gotten from the, the following folks? First is uh, Peter Thiel. Well, Peter's best advice is the importance of hiring undiscovered talent and the emphasis of that, which he really transmitted to me like 17 years ago. Um, and that's been a fundamental you know, sort of principle in my entire career. Uh, so it would be hard to agree with that. The yeah. second other piece is most people systematically undervalue their time. Uh, which is also been something I've tried to be incredibly attuned to and apply in various ways. Um, you know, so I run my life. What about from Reed Hoffman? Reed, um, the most important thing was strategic uses of time. Um, time is a dimension in the negotiation; it's a variable. And understanding whether time's your friend or foe allows you to totally change your negotiation strategy. How about your current investment partner, Vinod Kosla? Vinod um, has a great expression and an adage that he used when he was on the board of Square that really stuck with me and that I replicate all, you know, repeat all the time, which is the team you build is the company you build. We talked a lot about that today and how important that is, but that simplified it, you know, really crisply. What about Jack Dorsey? Um, the most important things I learned from Jack, the most important, single most important is how much details matter. Um, so, you know, Jack sort of in the Apple-esque way really believes in everything being precise, carefully thought through, not being experimental, not being um, undisciplined, and not being like sort of um, a minimal viable product. It should be delightful every time. And then how about Elon Musk? <laughs> Elon, <laughs> you learn, um, uh, well, the intensity, um, work ethic, um, the never saying no, meaning anything is possible with the right people and the right effort. So the final question for today, and you can elaborate a bit more on this one if you'd like, but if you were starting your career you know, all over again, what advice would you have given yourself you know, 20 or so years ago? Uh, wow. Um, the, well, the most important advice, but you know, I don't know if it would, change, it would have changed things for me, but the most important advice is to develop a strong network of tight connections that you've worked intensely with and you um, really trust. The second thing is to figure out um, what you can be extraordinary at as fast as possible, like how you can be the best at something and really define yourself to be better, the only one really who does what you aspire to do. And um, your earlier in your career, you can articulate that um, and sort of buff it and polish it, um, the better you'll, you'll do. Awesome. Well, thanks, Keith. You know, this has been an incredibly insightful and, and just a really fun conversation. So, you know, appreciate your time and, and the opportunity to talk through your experiences today.
And for those that are listening today, make sure to tune in next time as we continue to talk to VCs, corporate executives, and financiers on some of the most pressing business issues that are relevant today. Until then, take care.